Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. uh... Can I please have your attention? Don't touch that iPhone. This is still the remnant, but I'm not Jonah Goldberg. I'm David French. I'm filling in with Jonah, who is off. I think when back when I was at a National Review, Rich Lowry used to say that whenever somebody was gone, they were, quote, on assignment. Um, We'll say Jonah's on assignment. Jonah is gone. He is not in the office. He is not able to record the remnant. But you've got me, and I've got a special treat for you today. We're going to give you a preview of a new Dispatch podcast. It's called The Good Faith Podcast, and it's me, and it's my friend Curtis Chang. Say hello to the people, Curtis. Hello, and when do I get to go on assignment, David? Uh, No, you are always going to be chained to the desk for the podcast. Okay. So this podcast is, it's going to be a brand new Dispatch podcast. It's coming out later this month, and it's me and it's Curtis. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk, uh, introduce you to Curtis, and we're going to talk about some pretty darn interesting stuff about Christians and the vaccine, which is going to lead into a discussion of classical liberalism. Yes, I promise they're very closely connected, and we're going to show you why. And then uh, who knows where it goes from there. Uh, but Curtis, why don't you introduce yourself? Um, you know, who are you? You're a former pastor. You're also what a fellow something, something at Fuller seminary and <laughs> what else? Uh, well, it's great to be introduced to the, uh, dispatch audience here. Again, my name is Curtis Chang. I am somebody who straddles the world of secular institutions and the world of Christian faith. So I, on one hand, I'm a former pastor of an evangelical covenant church. I'm a senior fellow at Fuller Theological Seminary, faculty, uh, consulting faculty member at Duke Divinity School. So that's sort of my faith uh, foot. My secular foot is I run a consulting firm that serves secular nonprofits and government agencies. And I also teach strategic planning at American University in Washington, D.C. So uh, I, I straddle a foot in both worlds, and that's why I'm really excited to be with you in our Good Faith podcast and talking about how faith and the rest of the world intersect. Well, um, uh, one thing you left off, although this I can't remember if we put this in the, the podcast trailer or not. Um, we did like 19 takes of a two-minute trailer. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Uh, but Curtis is also a member of my fantasy baseball league um, that is 20 plus years old. At, I mean, goodness, it's real um, uh, coming close to 30 years old at this point, of which I'm a two-time champion. Uh, and how, and how did you do this year, David? I have no idea. Yeah, you I finished last. You finished okay, last. I finished last. All right. Well, that's too bad. 
<laughs> I stopped following <laughs> baseball um, with the PED scandal. Uh, I'm sorry, listeners. I've only got so much time. And when a, when a sport is like rife with cheating, it kind of bothers me a little bit. So uh, I really stopped following, but I stayed in the league and my fortunes have plummeted. But that's enough of the small talk, enough of the chit chat. Let's start with the interesting stuff. Um, so we're somewhat through part of the delta phase of the uh covid vari- of the covid variants um we have seen covid hit very hard in and we saw the delta variant hit very very hard in the southeast united states it hit very very hard amongst unvaccinated populations with hospitalizations and deaths and this is something that it's been one of the most contentious contentious issues in American political life, the existence of whether or not we should have mandates, uh, private mandates, public mandates. But you, Curtis, started an effort in the persuasion space called Christians and the Vaccine. And I think this is really interesting because you were super early in on spotting slow uptake amongst a particular population in America, white evangelicals, and we're very early in on trying to reach that population to persuade them. Again, not not this isn't about mandates, this is about persuasion. Persuade them to take the vaccine. So let's just sort of take this in a couple of stages. What did you see when that really alarmed you? Well, I think I was alarmed even before the vaccine came out when it became apparent that the whole response to the pandemic was getting so thoroughly politicized and that therefore in this overarching hijacking of white evangelicals for Trump and for the GOP, that uh, the evangelicals were going to end up becoming a vaccine resistant population, Uh, even though there is no religious basis for evangelicals to be uh, vaccine hesitant. And in fact, historically, white evangelicals have supported vaccines and supported vaccine mandates. But this just goes to show you the power of what's happened with how how politics has hijacked faith, and in particular, white evangelicals. And that was already happening during the pandemic when, uh, when this was set in motion, when Trump sort of downplayed the severity of the virus and the pandemic. And therefore, sort of set the running, the set the tracks for how the GOP and therefore how white evangelicals were going to view the pandemic. And once you downplay the seriousness of the pandemic, you're just hurtling down the same path to downplaying the need to take steps to combat the pandemic, including the vaccine. And so, in the even before the vaccine was released, we were seeing poll results that were that were showing very alarming uh, statistics that for months. Uh, up at, at from the end of 2020, um, white evangelicals were the trailing demographic in terms of vaccine acceptance, with figures as low as 45% of white evangelicals w- being willing to take the vaccine, with the rest being either undecided, hesitant, or decidedly opposed. So here's the question. So let me stand in for somebody who's saying, wait, hold on, that partisan answer is a little bit too pat because this is the Trump vaccine, right? I mean, so here you have a vaccine that was developed during Operation Warp Speed, which was a Trump administration initiative. And so there's always been sort of this this sort this paradox, okay? On the one hand, 
probably the core Trump constituency, uh, white evangelicals. The best exit polling indicates he got 80 plus percent reelect support from white evangelicals, was also the religious subgroup in the United States most resistant to the vaccine. And I've gotten, uh, thanks to you, Curtis, for roping me into this, I've written a lot about Christians and the vaccine. I've made arguments about why Christians should not be reluctant to take the vaccine, why Christians should out of love for their families and love for their neighbor and love for their communities and for their country should be willing to take this vaccine. I've hearkened back to Martin Luther's advice given to Christians during previous plagues. And the I get a ton of email in response, a ton, a ton of Twitter responses. And nobody's locating their reluctance in partisan politics. Like when they're explaining it, they're not, no, they're not locating their reluctance in partisan politics. They're relocating in a bunch of other things. It's not safe. It's uh, related to fetal cell lines. It's, so why, you, why do you say that there is a partisan angle to this when I'm sure you've seen, uh, you've told me about some on your Facebook, you have a Facebook for Christians and the vaccine, some pretty aggressive commentary, not a lot of it tied to politics. So why are you saying politics? I think this is a great, and this is why I think anybody who isn't even a Christian or, or you know, faith, have any faith really needs to pay attention to this intersection between faith and politics, because, you know, it, I think it, it demonstrates how complex and how fraught it is when, especially when politicians try to hijack the, you know, faith for their own ends. So, you know, there's a sense in which Trump has ridden evangelicals, especially white evangelicals to his political power, right? The statistics are very clear on that. And you can think that then, you know, that, that evangelicals are like a horse that Trump can ride and ride to victory. And then if he pivots, like if he suddenly decides, hey, I want to take credit for the vaccine, I will just, you know, snap my bridle, uh, my whatever, what is it that controls the horse? The, the, <laughs> the reins and the bridle. The, rain, yeah. the reins, yes. Yeah. I, I will snap my reins and then pivot kind of in that direction, right? Faith isn't like that. Faith, religion, Christianity, all religions, they have a, a energy, a dynamic and a force of their own. So if you hop on it, sometimes you can ride it like a horse, but it's like a tiger in the end. It has its own dynamic and impulses that actually exceed the, the reins of, of a control. So you know, this is why I say when when Trump set in motion this idea that we that to downplay the the uh, the pandemic, to not wear to to ridicule people who wear masks, to ridicule social distancing and so forth, it sets in motion this in, this existing uh, force of of faith, which then builds a momentum of its own. And so this I this sort of energy to downplay the pandemic and downplay measures to combat the the panic takes on a life of its own. It becomes a tiger that runs its own course. And so uh, this is why, you know, you have evangelicals now just reflexively resisting anything that is about a pandemic alleviation uh, and, and specifically the vaccine. I think the other thing is that it taps into, again, it's sort of uh, a force within uh, evangelicals in particular, which is distrust of institutions, right? So Trump is portraying himself as I will protect you from all of those awful secular institutions that are out to destroy your way of life. Well, that taps into 
this built in into evangelicalism is a certain kind of a critical stance, a certain, uh, you know, not, not willingness to immediately follow what secular institutions do. And for good reason, because our faith tells us that our ultimate authority is Jesus. And so we should at least question critically uh, all other institutions, including secular institutions. Well, when Trump takes that instinct and mobilizes it on his behalf, it again takes on this life of its own. And it, it ends up sort of fueling this instinctive distrust, this basic suspicion that gets expressed in all sorts of just its own craziness, QAnon and so forth. And then that translates into the vaccine because the vaccine, whether you take the vaccine is really a question of whether or not you trust institutions, right? None of us can actually, you know, other than, you know, the, the leading scientists knows, can peer into and know, oh yeah, this science is trustworthy uh, and, and I can see into the molecular composition of the, of the vaccine and I can trust it. We trust the vaccine because we trust the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, pharmaceutical companies, and so forth. So once you've mobilized the evangelical community to reflexively distrust all institutions, then of course, the vaccine becomes incredibly suspect because the vaccine, again, is an embodiment of institutions and, and whether or not you trust institutions. Yeah, one of the things I think was an interesting, early on, we we hit an inflection point. And this is something that David Leonard has written about in the New York Times, I thought, think quite effectively. And that is, if you poll a blue, somebody who would identify as a blue American, uh, um, left-leaning, if you poll somebody who's identifying as a red American, blue Americans have overestimated the danger of COVID and red Americans have underestimated the danger, dangers of COVID. And you've seen that manifest itself in ways on both sides of the spectrum. So for example, you saw a lot of people persistently sort of hanging on to outdoor masking, uh, for example. And, you know, if I was in, I was in Tennessee and I don't think I saw a masked walker or jogger, you know, I could count on the fingers of my hands, the number of times I saw somebody walking outside masked or jogging masked. But when I would go to New York or I would go to D.C. or Northern California, people were masked all over the place outside. And I think a lot of these things, your, your, the direction you leaned became a part of your identity. And no one's sitting around saying, I'm masking outside because, or very few people are saying it, I'm masking outside because I'm a Democrat. <laughs> or I'm rejecting social distancing because I'm a Republican. You're locating other reasons. Um, you know, why wouldn't I mask? It's spread by, it's spread in the air. I'm breathing the air, you know, and, and, or if I'm jogging, I'm expelling a lot of air and maybe there's someone around. So you're going to always sort of have a reason, but that initial choice, that initial polarization of the, of the virus has had knock on consequences for way over a year now, for way over a year now. And we still live with them. Well, and that's why, you know, that was really our attempt with Christians, the vaccine was to try to actually strip away this idea that your Christian identity should move you into, into vaccine resistance. Uh, and just at least ex minimally to expose and lay bare, really what's driving it is, is other forms of cultural identity. Um, and in particular, I think political identity, not, not necessarily like strict, like you said, conscious partisan identity, but a deep red sort of cultural uh, affiliation with one side or the other. And therefore my team requires me to 
to dress up in this particular way in this in either wearing the mask or not wearing the mask as part of the uniform for the team. Yeah. Yeah. And it is funny. I mean, just as a total aside, it is interesting to me how the teams do increasingly have uniforms. Yeah. Um, you know, so for example, I live in a, um, a really nice suburb of Nashville. You you've, you've been here, um, been there. one of the top 10 most prosperous suburbs in the U S super white collar, super white collar. I mean, there's a little bit of agricultural on the fringes. You, you live in a pickleball. You, you have pickleball courts there, so you're. you're we do have pickleball courts. You're yes, in the elite, yes. man. Yeah. <laughs> we we do have pickleball <laughs> courts. Yeah, but I would say, and and you live in Northern California in a pretty prosperous area yourself. I would say the number of Ford F one fifties where I live compared to where you live might be one hundred x the F one fifties, even though the need for an F one fifty is virtually nil like virtually nil and and look i'm i'm calling myself out here at various times as a writer and lawyer i have owned a nissan titan and a toyota tundra and my toyota tundra was so big it didn't it literally did not fit in the driveway of my new house cool truck um but yeah it, there's there is an interesting way in which in some ways you can you can identify people by their team um, by not just the presence or absence of a mask or presence or absence of social distancing, but pr- what are they driving? What yeah, Prius, pr- what, Prius Prime, you know, Prius or, uh, or F- F-150. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Exactly. It's, an, it's remarkable. Um, and yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing sort of the way in which our, our partisan attitudes have filtered into our choice of dress to, I was at a, a, a an event in, in Arkansas where the um it was there was some live music and the guy who was at the microphone said i just got a note um there's an f-150 in the parking lot being towed (laughs) at which point you know a significant portion of the crowd like looks around but (laughs) there these kind of partisan markers really are becoming part of the fabric of our lives so here's a question when you're doing in in your work with christians and the vaccine um, I would, you know, I would say it, it, what was the most common objection you received to the vaccine and what's the answer that you gave to the most common reason for rejection? Well, I think it got distributed among, uh, questions that had almost just a very thin veneer of faith and actual Christian theology on it. And then questions that actually got a little deeper into it. And I would say more of the questions just had the veneer. So the overwhelming most common question was the vaccine's not safe or the vaccine isn't the government, is this is a form of government control, especially with the mandates that became the government, the thing of government control became important. So, you know, we really had to answer those questions, both on the science, why it's safe, but kind of get underneath and try to get underneath, especially at that question of institutional distrust. And part of what we were trying to do was to remind you know Christians that institutions matter that they matter in God's design for human life that God designed us to be institutional beings to to know things and trust things because we have this because we have human institutions that were you know kind of created and designed for that purposes so part of so that was one way we addressed it and then you know there was definitely a element that um you know there I think at some level, there were legitimate 
kind of religious questions like, can you be pro-life um, and be pro-vaccine? So the questions of the, the uh, involvement of fetal cells in the research and development of the vaccine was an issue that we, again, had to address and take seriously. Well, why don't you address value. that now? Because I get lots of comments and questions about that to this day. And there's a huge amount of conflicting information out there about it. So tell me, uh, as I'm a pro-life, um, should I be concerned? And if not, what, what's your argument as to why not? So the basic argument is that the, there is no fetal cells in the vaccine and, uh, at all. And, and that the, the connection is a distant one. The connection is that it, the development of the vaccine relied on a cell line. A cell line is not a fetal cells. A cell line are descendants of some original cell that was, in this case, uh, back in the 1970s. And the cell line is called HEK-293. And no one knows for sure the exact origins of HEK-293, but most likely, it's a very high probability, it was cultivated from the remains of an abortion. Whether it was an elective abortion or a medical, you know, whatever, no one knows. But it's a, there's a good chance it was it was uh, cultivated from that. So the question is, you know, this cell these cell lines are now descendants. They're not the actual cells from the abortion. They're descendants. They're you know reproduced in the lab, and then used for the development and in some cases the testing uh, of, of the vaccine. So the question is, does that make you morally culpable of participating in abortion? And all the leading, most you know, sort of uh, staunch pro-life thinkers on this subject, with the vac the Vatican at the forefront of this, have said no, it does not. Simply because some uh, event had its a distant origin in sin does not make anything that stems from that automatically sinful. If that were the case, one all Christians would almost have to withdraw from modern medicine because almost all modern medicine is derived from cell lines like EHEAK-293. Uh, You'd have to almost stop taking almost any modern... But like a ton of over-the-counter medications. Yeah, like ibuprofen like and Advil and, you know, almost all heart cholesterol, uh, di you know, diabetes, uh, hypertension medicine, all of that, all, you know, benefited in some way from EHEAK-293 or, or equivalents. And so... You know, this idea that Christians are called to moral purity in the sense of not touching anything that had any distant connection, it, it, one, it's unrealistic and it's and Christians don't do it. They're not consistent in, in doing that. And two, it's actually counter to the gospel, counter to the gospel, because the idea is the conclusion of the gospel is we're all tainted by sin. We're all this. We're all descendants of sin. We're all descendants of the legacy of sin. And and so to the idea that we can somehow have moral purity by not touching it. That's hearkening back to sort of Jewish purity laws of legalism that Jesus, frankly, was was trying to condemn and say, no, that's not how sin works, right? Sin is of the heart and of, of one's motivation and, and also of one's actions. And, and it's critical to realize that one's action and take the vaccine, you are not in any way encouraging more abortions. That abortion that spawned HEK-293 uh, happened 1973. And you buy, and there's no more abortions that are happening in order to survive. That's that it's all of this cell line is derived from that one event, you know, many decades ago. So this is why the vaccine and all other leading pro-life thinkers and philosophers have said, no, take the vaccine. Um, and in fact, I should say that Christians have gotten themselves so twisted around that now one of the leading 
arguments for Christian anti-vaxxers against things like the vaccine mandate, for instance, is this line, my body, my choice, right? Don't right. you dare, you know, tell me what to, to, what to put into my body. It's my body, my choice. And they don't at all even recognize the profound irony that they are relying on this very line that is the tagline of the, of the abortion movement. Oh, I think they recognize. I think they recognize. No, it's a right. troll. It's a troll. That's, that is a, that's a, I do not believe, there are people who say, in all sincerity, you can't tell me what to put in my body. But I think that my body, my choice is a troll. I think that, I think that's a, a public troll designed to trigger people. And so it's part of this, if you don't uphold a principle, I don't have to uphold a principle kind of public discourse that we're in. Or if you advocate a principle, you can't, it's, it's a, it's a, in my view, that's that my body, my choice language is a giant troll, but the, I can put whatever, you can't tell me what to put in my body argument is one that I've seen an awful lot, but is certainly not a consistently applied ethic and hasn't been consistently applied in vaccine mandates for a really, really, really long time. And in fact, I remember quite well when anti-vaxxing first emerged that um, evangelicals mocked it. Like this was, totally. this was something that the Marin County crunchy people's hyper progressives did. And, and, um, and yet now it's, it's completely, it's just completely flipped around. But we should be clear when we talk about evangelical vaccine re reluctance, we're often, we're not talking about majorities. What we're talking about is a vocal minority. It's just a larger minority in this subgroup uh, than it is in, in many other subgroups. So there's millions and millions and millions of evangelicals who are like, yeah, I'll take that vaccine. Yeah, I'll take shot number two. Sign me up for the booster. Millions. But it's a disproportionate number who are anti-vaccine. Yeah, and let me just give you some numbers just to back up exactly what you're saying. So for one, on the point that historically evangelicals have been pro-vaccine, uh, as recently as 2017, or this is just a few years ago, 2017, Pew did a, a Pew Research Center did a survey on support for childhood vaccine mandates. Can you mandate vaccines for measles, mumps, rubella in schools? Well, white evangelical Protestants, 76% of them, 76% of them, white evangelical Protestants supported vaccine mandates for children in school, right? So they're pro-vaccine, pro-mandate. In just four years, we've seen that number, you know, not entirely flip, but, you know, flip pretty significantly, which just shows you how much it really is culture war, short-term culture war and politics that are sort of, you know, triggering this, this flip. The other thing to, to say is that we've seen real movement. I think persuade, we have to sort of hold our faith that persuasion still uh, works. Uh, and and as, as evidence of this, you know, as I said, uh, we got into the Christians of the Vaccine work because we saw for months that vaccine acceptance among white evangelicals was stuck for months at around 45%. So only 45% of white evangelicals were saying they would take the vaccine. Well, that, that as we launched the campaign, and I can't, I don't, I don't at all take credit for all of this. It's all you, Curtis. It's all it's, you. It's all <laughs> but you. I think there were other persuasive, you know, sort of measures and uh, efforts in place. And uh, it grew, it has grown steadily such that our most recent 
uh, survey of that shows that white evangelicals now are accepting the vaccine at, at 62%, right? So from, we've gone from 45% to 62% uh, through, through persuasion. This is before mandates kicked in. Um, so we can't give up on that. Now, you rate, we, we keep turning around the word evangelical, and let, let's open another can of worms for a minute, <laughs> because we have to define our terms. And I think that what's ending up happening is we have sort of two broad categories of evangelicals, if we're going to define our terms. One is self-described evangelicals. So, and, and often we're, the, and the reason why we use the term white evangelicals an awful lot is because exit polls, this is an artifact of exit polls and, and political coalitions. So exit polls have identified that the white cohort of self-described evangelicals are a giant political constituency in the United States. And so when you'll see, for example, an exit poll, let's take the Virginia, the Virginia um, race, gubernatorial race, 27% of the electorate were self-described white evangelical or born-again Christians. So there's no theological test when somebody says they're an evangelical in all of these polls about vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. There's no theological test applied at all. It's just, I could never go to church. I wouldn't be able to know what the first book of the Bible is, but I believe in God. I'm a Republican. So I'm evangelical. Right. And there's a lot of evidence that now most self-described evangelicals go to church monthly or less. And then there's another group of evangelicals that are what you would call theological evangelicals. In other words, they meet they can answer yes to some basic questions about theology. And the best evidence says that there's a huge gap that exists in this country between self-described evangelicals and theological evangelicals. And the theological evangelicals of all races under the most restrictive sort of Barna test are around six, seven percent of America, of all races, where it's just white self-described evangelicals are 28 percent. And so this makes things really hard, in my view, because what you end up doing is talking to people and this will just be flat out at the risk of sounding like elitist or whatever. You often end up talking to people who faith identify, but don't know much about the faith they identify with. Um, it, is that, I mean, when you're talking about Christians and the vaccine, is that something that you have, that you've noticed? Absolutely. And one, one way just to circle back is that, you know, to what we just talked about is that now faith has become part of the team jersey, right, in the in the culture war. And so that you have, in the same way that people wear jerseys of teams, even though they're incredibly unathletic and have nothing really to do with, you know, sort of getting out on right. the field, uh, there's the same way that people put on the jersey. Part of the jersey is evangelical because that's what our team wears, but they don't get out on the field in terms of the, the actual faith practice in any way. Um, and so one way that, and that is completely thoroughly uh, affected the vaccine stuff. So one way that you can see this is when you look at the big gap between Christian leaders, ministers, pastors, and people that are 
attending their church maybe once a month, once every other month or something like that um, as part of this team identity exercise, right? You know, the National Association of Evangelicals early on in the pan pandemic did a survey of, and it was a limited survey of just their leadership circle, but these were all pastors, right? Almost 90% of them were pro-vaccine, right? So these are the people who theologically, they're pastors, right? They're, they are theological evangelicals by, def you know, almost by definition, right? So they're like over 90% are pro-vaccine. That's in comparison to their base, which is this sort of floating. I'm a former pastor. I know what happens, right? It's like I get people who come every month, once every other month, or on Christmas or on Easter and so forth. These are the self-described evangelicals who are putting just on the jersey twice a month or twice a year or something like that. Those folks, right, are only at 45% acceptance. So this shows you how massive that gap is that that you're talking about that, that translates into the vaccine, particularly. Yeah, just to give you some concrete sense of how, uh, and I've talked about this in my newsletter, how partisan identity can really impact your religious identity against the backdrop of sort of otherwise identical faith practices. So if you're a Republican and you're a Christian and you go to church once a year or less, you're, there are two thirds of those people identify as evangelical. So you're Republican and you're a Christian and you go to church once a year or less, two thirds say that they're evangelical. And I'm familiar with a lot of different strains of evangelicalism, but none of them hold to once yearly <laughs> church attendance, like not one of them. Now, interestingly, on the Democratic side, you have to get up near weekly or more church attendance before an equivalent number of people will say that they're evangelical. And so that's how tightly tied that name has become, has come to politics. So on the one hand, you might have somebody who's democratic and they check off all the boxes theologically, but they don't want to be called that. And it's going to take a lot of, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be reluctant to put on those clothes and you're a Republican and you might check off none of the boxes and, but give me that Jersey. Um, but one thing I do want to be clear about Jersey wearing, I don't wear jerseys, but I do wear a lot of Memphis Grizzlies gear even though I've never taken the court of the Fed, you know, better, never been on the floor of the FedEx Forum. But I will state for the record, listeners, I have played two years, two full years, and averaged 20 points per game in the NBA, the Nashville Bar Association <laughs> Basketball League. You were not recently, and that was in my prime. As I remember, you were prime. known for a deadly outside shot. Is that, is that was I? Am I correct in the scouting? Don't report? put that past tense. Am known oh, am for. Known. I got it. Okay. Am known for a deadly three point shot. As advisory opinions listeners know, that I have, you know, flagship dispatch podcast. Um, know that I have long lamented that it was one year before my time because I graduated high school in 1987 in Kentucky. And in 1988, they implemented the three-point line. So there's a bright line between in 1987, a guy who can drain it from 22 feet. Okay, at the, risk, at, at the risk of completely uh, boring your listeners here, let me do my <laughs> version of your, what your, your, your little self-tout there, which was that you're talking to the starting center of the Harvard Chinese Student Association basketball team of 1980, circa 1989. Nine, I think, 88, 89. And, uh, you know, one of the great, uh, awesome benefits of, of, uh, of, of that experience was that I could finally like post up and go down low because I was just tall for 
compared to all the other <laughs> Chinese Americans at Harvard. After that. So I was, I was, so what you're saying I was is backing for... people down as a six foot scrawny, uh, <laughs> sophomore. I love it. Uh, so what you're saying is we are the best over the hill basketball podcast duo in American. I, I think, I think we can claim that. Um, okay. So wait, all right. Let me, let me, let, okay, wait, that's way of field. Let's, well, that's let me way turn of back. Field. Let me turn back to this whole, uh, sort of this the question, because I think it's, is this whole issue of for people who aren't sort of insiders to the, through what's happening in American Christianity, American magicals, it's important for them to really grasp this point that you were just making, David, which is that there is a battle underway for kind of who gets to wear that jersey? Who gets to call themselves evangelical, right? For myself, because of so how how much evangelicalism has gotten hijacked by Trump and you know the GOP that I do not subscribe to, that I I've stopped using that term for me for much of sort of 2008, you know, post-Trump. I, I was using that term to self-describe myself less and less. Um, and especially in the Bay Area, if I sort of was known as an evangelical, all sorts of associations, you know, get I, I, I could get easily canceled, you know, just for claiming that that title. I it was a conscious decision for me in starting Christians of the Vaccine to reclaim the the label evangelicals, and I, I felt like I had to do that in order to reach sort of <laughs> precisely those all the massive people who that that title means something to them right like so uh i mean i i still check all the boxes of the theological evangelical but i've had to really say no i'm gonna i'm gonna take on that title culturally and in public because we gotta fight for that <laughs> we gotta fight to reinform the meaning it's a of good that word yeah it's a good word it's a very good word and it is so interesting though where you live how much that impacts what that word means so if you're in the Bay Area and you say you're evangelical, there's a pile of assumptions that go along with that that are highly negative. That's right. Okay. If you're in Franklin, Tennessee, where I am, and you say you're evangelical, there's a pile of associations that come with that that are highly positive in that context, but not all of the associations match. So if I'm sitting here saying, yeah, I'm an evangelical, there's a lot of correct assumptions people might make about, say, my religious beliefs, but incorrect assumptions about my political identity. And so, and the other thing is, if you disclaim the evangelical label where I am, not only do you disclaim the political label, which I'm fine with, but you disclaim the theological label, the theological understanding, which I'm not fine with. So you're, you're kind of in a box there that in such a way that that you know the word itself has historical value, but the stinking exit poll <laughs> has drained it. And here's what I wish. If here's what I wish. I understand that that I I definitely understand that pollsters need to understand political coalitions. Absolutely. It is worth understanding. I wish they would add just one question. Regardless of race, do you identify as evangelical or born again? Regardless of race. And so what that would immediately tell people is that evangelicalism as a faith community is far more diverse politically than the word sort of consistently, you know, than, than the word con consistently implies. And I think that would be better for the church 
if people understood there's a lot more political diversity here. Um, so yeah, anyway, you're, you're about to say, respond to that. Well, I want us to say something to listeners who are not Christians or not faith oriented. And I, I, I imagine if you're listening to this, at least some of you, you know, may be tempted to say, God, this is so complicated and this is so fraught <laughs> with problems. This is exactly why I wish faith in politics and faith in society was just completely separate or would just go away. That, that Christianity is just kind of a problem in, in the world and a problem for the pandemic and problem with the vaccine. I, I want to actually, again, remember this is our podcast that we're about to launch. It's called Good Faith. And so, I, so as much as we're talking, as we need to talk about the ill effects of faith, it's important to underline the good faith aspect of it, which is we would have a, if we, if we did a, a mental thought experiment and we just evaporated uh, in a snap of a finger, sort of like Thanos, right? Evaporated the effects of, of Christianity in culture. Christianity never existed in, in, in American and modern world culture, right? What would the world look like right now with COVID? The world would look very different because really our response to the, to the pandemic, to, to care about it, to, to do masking, to develop the vaccine, to want people to take the vaccine, it's all predicated really on caring for the unfit, quote unquote, right? Because really from the very beginning, it was clear that COVID was the big problem for the elderly, for the immunocompromised, for the people who are out of, you know, obese, More vulnerable overweight. People, the yeah. These were the people right. who were going most at danger. And, and really all of the whole society was mobilizing and changing itself and going through all these contortions really for the most vulnerable people living in our midst, right? Well, why do we care about them? Why do we care about the most unfit and the most vulnerable? And if you realize before Christianity came along the stage throughout centuries of human history, the answer was we don't care about them. If you look at how societies, ancient societies responded to plagues, to disease, it was like you throw them out on the street. You, 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 sank, you throw them somewhere else. Like you don't care about people who are unfit. It was Christianity that changed that. And it was Christianity changed that because Christianity brought this radical idea into the world, which was human beings are made in the image of God because Jesus was God made human. So therefore, the human being intrinsically, not just the strong human, not just the fit human, but human beings intrinsically had God-given value and worth. And that radically changed how we responded to plagues and diseases. And there's strong historical evidence that. Read the, the sociology Rodney Stark, and he shows how part of the reason why Christianity grew so explosively in the first centuries was precisely because plagues would routinely hit the Roman Empire. And Christianity, Christians responded to the plague by treating the ill, by taking in the, at their own risk of their own lives, uh, taking the, the those who were affected. And that that I, and, and Christians, Christ, early Christians were the ones who created the hospital. We don't have a hospital without Christianity, without Christians. That, that, you know, this is why we have St. Jude, St. Mark's and all that. It was Christians who formed the very first and institutions, you know, in a regular systematic way of hospitals. And so, yes, Christianity has been a complex and, and sometimes ill effect, but also we don't have our basic sense of understanding of why we ought to care for people who are sick and ill and infirm 
uh, our basic idea of humanity is a legacy of Christianity. You, and it's it's fine if you don't subscribe theologically to to the Christian tenets anymore, but at least recognize that you are the beneficiary of the legacy of Christianity through centuries of of uh, human history. Well, I mean, and I would say let, let's turn towards sort of the classical liberal liberalism argument. And 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 look, there are, are uh, a lot of readers from other, I mean, listeners from other faiths who would say, whoa, 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 whoa. We have traditions of caring for the poor and the infirm in Islam. We have traditions of caring, certainly in the, you know, going back to the Judeo-Christian, gosh, the Old Testament is where we get a lot of our entire sense of caring for the more vulnerable. So I think that, that the, 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 but the, when you're talking about this sort of civilizational move, particularly in, in, in America and other places, the civilizational move that locates and um, that locates a lot of our civilizational ethos in the dignity of the individual, in the dignity of the individual, like the the source of the dignity of the individual. For example, in the American founding even though there's certainly dignity of the individual in Islam, that was not the source of the dignity of the individual construct in the American founding. And I, I think that's one thing that there's a lot of people who kind of put this classical liberal American founding under fire. And I think of, you know, these words, like we're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think of those words as echoing in this dignity, this, this, Judeo-Christian infused dignity of the individual. When you're talking about the Bill of Rights, freedom from cruel and unusual punishment, due process, because again, remember, like due process is often, who are the beneficiaries of due process? They're often the single most despised people in any community, the single most despised, criminal defendants, people who've been already adjudicated in the public's mind as guilty. So all of this is really locating so much of sort of who we are and how we define ourselves as a people and the dignity of the individual. And I think it's so important as we, you know, we're struggling right now with so many of the after effects of evangelical, evangelicalism turning into sort of a God and country lifestyle brand that we're missing that, and I'm glad you brought it up, that much deeper value. And what's fascinating is to watch people who don't identify as Christian, don't identify as evangelical, shaming some current evangelicals with the abandonment of their own principles of taking care of the weak and most vulnerable in our society. That's right. And it's, 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 that's the, you know, sort of sadness is that, you know, the, the sort of, non-Christians who have sort of received the legacy of one of great Christianity's great gifts to the world, which is precisely this dignity of the individual, has to remind sort of quote-unquote evangelical jersey-wearing folks of, hey, this is what your team really stands for, don't forget, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, so yes, uh, and that is, that, that's, that's, that is one of the great tragedies. This is why uh, Christians have to, like, we've got to get back into the game to recapture the true definitions of Christianity at its most fundamental roots, which is not about which, you know, color jersey you're wearing on, in a political cultural sense. It's so much deeper. Um, and it, it is getting out on the field to fight and embody this basic dignity of human beings that are God given, that are as, are, as, the, 
the person says endowed in us by our creator i mean all of, and and this is why christians need to get into the game in fighting for classic liberalism which is something that i know david you've written so much about which is because classical liberalism is an expression it's the it's it's at least the best political expression we have of not of at the deepest levels what it means to treat the individuals as having dignity it's a it's a political system that stood this as that guards that the best and and you look at you know sort of the language of the declaration of the bill of rights it's incomprehensible All, that language is incomprehensible unless you have a sense that individuals intrinsically have worth and then you, which raises the question well, why do the individuals intrinsically have worth where did that come from and and at least christianity has provided an answer to that yeah, and one one thing that I think is um, also important because a lot of people who are sort of leaning towards post liberalism really um, upset at sort of the individualism of American classical liberalism, they forget. And this is something that I I need to do a better job. Like when I write about this, about reminding people of American classical li liberalism is also in many ways deeply protective of institutions, um, and. You know, one of the things it is, it is in fact a bulwark because these liberties of, you know, free exercise of religion, that is not just an, in, a, a, a liberty that attaches to an individual. It's a liberty that attaches to an institution, an institution of a church or a synagogue. It attaches or a mosque, it attaches to these institutions. Um, freedom of speech. I mean, this is not just something that attaches to the individual. It attaches to institutions like churches, like political parties, like civic associations. All of these things, even you know, in in to lesser uh, to to way some ways that are um, uh, you know, the, many of the other rights in the Bill of Rights, there in there are ways in which institutions are able to exercise those rights. And so, one of the fascinating and interesting things about the United States of America, and this goes all the way back to early, early times, de Tocqueville talked about this has, we have this distinct culture that really is built around these civic associations and these institutions. And, and uh, gosh, I don't have my book in front of me, but I have this quote from my book that distinguishes the American spontaneous creation of institutions from the sort of European royal top-down imposition of institutions. And so I, I think that's one of, the, one of the most important things about our cl classical liberalism is its institutional protection. And one of the reasons why our decay and our distrust of institutions has become so toxic. Yeah, and David, this, this gets to the, my big theological passion project, which is to re-imbue Christians, theological Christians, and including theological evangelicals, with this understanding that that institutions, human institutions, are also made in the image of God, and this is something that Christians have lost. Right that 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 the human is bears the image of God, and that includes certainly the human individual, but it also includes the uh, human collectives like the family. It also includes human collectives like the church, and it also, in its own way, includes human collectives like organizations, like institutions, like companies, like government agencies, that they too bear the human. And therefore, in their own way, you know, not, in a, not exactly the same way that an individual bears the image of God, but in, in a closely related way, a human institution also bears the image of God and also has a intrinsic dignity. And this is, I think, critical for our political moment at this day, because we are, as Yuval Levin uh, has written so eloquently about, we are so much 
in this uh, in, uh, sort of instinct of treating institutions as tools that we can tear down or throw away if they are, do not achieve our ends, right? They, we don't view institutions as having an intrinsic worth, worthy and a dignity, uh, even including, frankly, infirm uh, institutions, institutions that are, are troubled, right? That they, in their own way, we need to protect and nurture them just like we protect and nurture and restore them to health that we do that with individuals. And again, that's all, ba that we're only going to care about institutions with it, ha having that kind of intrinsic worth that makes them worthy of us investing in them even when they are troubled. We're only going to have that instinct if we deep down recognize institutions have an intrinsic dignity and worth and then especially for Christians, we recognize that that's, that's also was endowed by our creator. So it sounds like you just gave the really long theological confirmation of Mitt Romney saying corporations are people too, my friend. <laughs> yes, I suppose in its own way. In a way, I just did that. Uh, so yeah. yeah, you know, but you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, one of the reasons why we founded the dispatch was we wanted, we, we wanted to build an institution. We wanted to build something that was in, infused with an ethos. It was infused with an ethos by the human beings within it. But it's also something that, you know, Lord willing, will outlast the individuals, even though it was individuals who infused within it that ethos. And it will have a, an, um, a role and a place to play that is the legacy of that ethos, which is very much, a, you know, it comes from human beings. And sort of this the anti-institutionalism of the moment. And look, I have written at great length about the perils of Christendom. In other words, how the institutions of American Christianity can be corrupted towards and aimed towards secular power. But that's not a reason to ditch the institutions as so much as it's a reason to reform and renew the institutions. And, and in certain circumstances, start new ones. That's right. That's right. um, that will that will be instruments of reform and revitalization. Sure, and and in fact, the, uh, I think a Christian narrative of institutions as made in the image of God actually gives us some reason to make sense of corrupt, fallen, broken institutions, which do dot our landscape, just like corrupt, fallen, broken human individuals dot our lives, right? And so, uh, you know, we ought to expect that the same kind of, you know venality and weakness and uh, messed upness that affects our family members, our extended family members, that Uncle Joe uh, and, and whatever, Cousin Bob, who's troubled and so forth like that, right? That same understanding, of, oh yeah, they're, they're human, right? And we ought to extend a certain grace to Uncle Joe and Cousin Bob because they're human. Even though they're troubled, we, and we're trying to help them get better, but, but we also want to recognize we extend a certain grace to humans because humans are fallen, right? That's, that's basic to the gospel. In that same way, we need to extend that same understanding and grace to our institutions, who are the equivalents of Uncle Bob and Cousin Frank, or whatever. You know, you get my idea, right? Like yeah, that, that, yeah, that, yeah, that, absolutely. that agencies and institutions, uh, we can't reflexively have this sort of stance of, oh, they're no good. Anything that comes from them, we're automatically suspicious of and we reject. We can't live that way. Uh, just, we can't live that way with individuals and we can't live that way with human individuals and we can't live that way with human institutions. And this is why, again, I think reinvigorating the Christian imagination that institutions were made in the image of God is part of a critical way in which we recapture faith to be good faith and not bad faith. Yeah. 
Well, you know, one of the concepts that has really helped me is distinguishing between skepticism and cynicism. And that I think there is such a thing as a healthy skepticism. There's a, there's such a thing that you're just not going to accept, you know, my, my institutional trust, for example, is not going to necessarily extend to say a Liberty university telling me all is fine with Falwell jr. When there's enough smoke out there to say, what are you talking about? Or, you know, so there, there has to be an, a healthy institution requires a degree of a skeptical stance. Um, trusting, going back to this trust concept with individuals. Um, I have a healthy skepticism towards my own self. Totally. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I, you know, I don't trust that my immediate reaction to something is going to be correct. You know, I don't, um, I know I've made many mistakes, but there is a line between skepticism and cynicism that to me, the cynicism aspect of it is where we begin to veer into the wrong territory and that I'm going to reflex, I'm going to not um, reflexively believe everything has morphed into, I'm going to reflect, not just reflexively disbelieve, but seek the destruction of. That's right, write them off. Inst- so, yeah. Write them off. Yeah. Right. And and again, this is why, again, the human is so crucial. The vision of the human is so crucial, right? Because David, you and I have like close friends who have like betrayed us, who have betrayed our trust, who have done things that are like, oh man, I didn't see that coming exactly, but, ugh. and yet, <laughs> and yet, or at all, <laughs> and yet well, I know we both know we are called nevertheless not to write that person off ultimately, right. right? That they're made in the image of God, that Jesus died for that individual, that that person has a hope of redemption. And so therefore we don't write them off. In that same way, we've got to recapture that same posture towards our institutions, that we don't write them off as broken as they are, as flawed as they are. And we don't, because Jesus in his in its own way, Jesus died to redeem human institutions also. Um, and so we need to, you know, that's got to be part of our vision of how Christians engage in politics. And we kind of get that instinctively with some of the institutions that are sort of indispensable to functioning society. Like post-Vietnam War, the American military was broken in many fundamental ways. I mean, it's really interesting uh, with with Colin Powell's death, uh, I was brought to mind some of his memoirs of coming into the military in the Vietnam era and sort of that, what it was like to serve in the military in the late Vietnam era and the early post-Vietnam era and how fundamentally broken that institution was in so many ways. And yet, you know, you could count on the fingers of one hand, the number of people said, well, we got to toss that into the trash bin, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and, and one of the, you know, the, the, to bring it to much more contemporary place, um, you know, we had that brief flare up in 2020 of abolish the police or defund the police, where the reality is that there needed to be renewal and reform not demolition and abolition and and those those institutional commitments and to the health of institutions i mean it's one of our only way it's one of the few ways back out of our present uh, you know our present atmosphere of of division crisis and distrust yeah and that's actually the defund the police example is a great example of how this is this is, affects not just the right, but also the left, right? This our idea that it's a, there's a deep cynicism in play that is a 
well, it's so I'm just going to write it off and I'm not going to even grant it the possibility of redemption and reform. And if we if we lapse into that on both sides, uh, left and right, then we're in a very dark place because what brings us together? I mean, it, 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 it's institutions that bring us together. It's institutions that are the common ground that, that you know, give us some chance to, to work together on things. Well, it's like any, uh, uh, we're increasingly moving to a, towards, a stand, towards a stance where the institution and its people must serve my partisan ends. Or, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm, ve- I'm very determined, Curtis, I'm very determined as a tremendous fan of the National Basketball Association, the product on the court, the teams, the players. I'm super determined not to be blown and tossed by the winds of the latest political statement coming from Draymond Green or LeBron James. <laughs> That's right. Or Kyrie Irving's <laughs> right. vaccine <Yeah>. rejection. <laughs> um, that there has to be a, a, a sense that my respect for who you are as a human being for the you know the product that this that this company is producing is now I'm not going to say there aren't lo- limits like there are guardrails there are things that are beyond the pale of course but there has to be sort of a basic background level of tolerance that says if you're an outstanding point guard or you've made a great phone or if this meal that I'm eating is delicious you know the, in the sort of the fundamental function of the organization you know, we got some give on the politics here. We're going to kind of let you be who you are and sort of live who what live what you believe in a sort of an authentic and a public way without conditioning my presence at your establishment on your agreement with my politics. And that's kind of a little bit that that's moving into the cancel culture world. But I think of cancel culture as deeply degrading. Totally. To institutions. Institutions and individuals, right? This idea right. that, that um, you know, if you don't check all the boxes, if you don't wear the right jerseys, if you don't say the right chants, then therefore you are, you know, ejected from acceptance uh, as, as a fellow human being with worthy of the same respect, dignity, and, you know, treatment that you would expect extend to any other human being. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, these are, there's a very uh, tight connection between the ways that we are falling into just writing individuals off in our lives because they don't check the right boxes to us writing off institutions because they don't check the right boxes that are on our side. And we've got to get out of that. Right, right. Well, you know, and the other thing is I don't have to belong to an institution to root for it. Like I, I, I don't, I, I've left the Republican Party, but I don't wish it ill. I want it to be reformed and renewed in many ways that I've never been a Democrat in my life, but I want it to be a healthy institution. It's an, it's a, it's a necessity, but anyway, well, we are, we're, um, past our ish. We're, we're moving past our, our ish time with the emphasis on ish. Um, but I did want to ask one thing because I wrote this last, uh, this news, my newsletter this last Sunday about something that really fascinated me. And I just want to get your, answer to this did this does this surprise you and if not why not um and or if so why and that is that um as everyone knows there was a gubernatorial election in virginia this was for a lot of technical legal reasons that we've explained at length at advisory opinions but i'll briefly summarize as with roe versus wade potentially it, it might be overruled it might be i'm not 
saying it will be, but it might be, there's a strong possibility that it will be this year. For the first time, this next wave of gubernatorial elections may, since 1973 may be electing governors who can sign into law either abortion bans or dramatic abortion restrictions that would be more dramatic than are currently lawful. Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate for Virginia, for, for, uh, Virginia governor, made the protection of abortion rights one of his absolutely central cons- um, parts of his campaign. Spent millions of dollars in ads. He campaigned at abortion clinic. One of his pro-abortion, uh, pro-abortion rights ads, pro-life, uh, pro-choice ads, ran over a thousand times. Um, and yet, of all of the issues that Virginians confronted when they went to the polls, the least important to them of the important issues. So uh, there was a poll that asked, what are the most important things? And abortion was lowest in that poll with only 8% putting it at top priority. And of the 8% who put it at top priority, it broke roughly 60-40 in the pro-life direction. So what that indicated, for all of the online intensity, and you can't be on Twitter without seeing it about abortion, Offline, there was not that much intensity at all. And McAuliffe's millions and millions in ad buys were like a giant swing and a miss. He was not hitting the electorate where they were. Does that, does that 8% surprise you? And if, it, and, and if so, why? If not, why not? It does surprise me. And I, I have not followed all the polling uh, enough to know whether this is an outlier or this is actually part of trying you would know better. And I'm actually probably should just turn it back to you and you tell me whether, <laughs> whether I should be surprised or not. But let me turn the question back to you, David, which is what that would suggest would be, is there, does that, does that open a crack for a certain detente on abortion? That is, uh, that, that federalism, you know, sort of the classic federalism, the post row federalism, yeah. right? Does that, does that open a crack for that? Um, or do you, you know, that we basically say, look, we're going to let states decide. We're going to let, we're going to let, we're not going to ban it or not going to enforce, you know, uh, one way or the other. And, uh, you know, at one level, that seems like that could be one is that opens a crack to that. But does that also open up more your, your nightmare scenario of your last book, Divided We Fall, which, you know, f- makes states even more uh, separate from any sense of common political uh, identity? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'll preface by saying I don't know, but I have some educated guesses on what this means. So, so what I would say is, as so I'm pro-life, I want to see Roe overturned. Um, and I look at that eight, that number and I see bad news and I see good news. Here's the bad news. The number of voters who prioritize life in that election was really low, <laughs> like really low. It was 6% of eight, 60% of the 8%. So, you know what, you know, more, um, little less than 5% of total voters were, were prioritizing the pro-life vote. Um, the good news is, well, that was still more than the pro-choice side, not by much, but it was still more. And the interesting thing to me is what it, what it says is that quite possibly the Supreme Court overruling Roe wouldn't be, it will be online or it would be online for sure. But in the real world, the convulsive event 
that a lot of people thought it would be. Maybe, maybe not, but this is a, a data point towards the maybe not. So what does that mean? Again, that brings you into, from a pro-life perspective, a good news, bad news type situation. So the good news is because it wouldn't be convulsive, maybe the more institutionalist-minded folks in the court will worry a bit less, less about whether the legitimacy of the court is in state. This is all you know speculation, but worry less that the legitimacy of the of the court is at stake, worry less that it would be a convulsive political event across the nation. And so that row is not maybe the flashpoint that we thought. And so that overruling row is not something that would be as convulsive as many people have feared. So that's the good news. Well, then here's the bad news. The bad news is, from a, again, from a pro-life perspective, is that Overruling Roe, of course, does not end abortion in the United States of America. It means that it goes back to the states. The states decide. And if there's not a huge degree of passion on that one way or the other, it's really hard to say that you're going to then be able to harness something potent to then go from step one to step two. Step one being overruling Roe and step two being protecting um, life both in culture and in law. Okay. But I'll end on the last, you know, this, this segment on the last hopeful note. There's a lot of cultural trends that say that the abortion is diminishing anyway, sort of regardless of sort of the background of the legal dispute, that since Roe, um, when Roe was first, uh, first decided, abortion shot up in the U.S., legal abortion. And it's been steady to, steadily declining for 40 years, and now it's less prevalent than it was before Roe. And if those trends continue, you could see a situation 10 years, 15 years in the future where abortion is a, is a relatively rare thing in the United States of America. So I would say there's good news for pro-life folks in that number, 8% number. There's bad news in that 8% number, but there are larger cultural trends that are moving in the pro-life direction and have for 40 years. So I guess that's where I sit on it at the end of the day. So, well, Curtis. David. Can't wait to do this. I can't wait to do this. Good faith. In coming our new soon. Podcast. That's right. Coming soon. So uh, I will be putting it in my newsletters as soon as the link is available. Um, we're going to ask you, um, we're going to ask you to go ahead and subscribe even before it's out. But our tentative plan is first episode November 20th. It will be in the November 21st Sunday newsletter. Super excited about it. Um, we're going to talk about all the tough stuff, like all of it. <laughs> we're going to talk about all of it. And I'm really looking forward to it. In the meantime, this has not been the Good Faith Podcast. It's been The Remnant. Uh, with Jonah, apologize for the late notice hijacking. Hope you still enjoyed it. And... Jonah will see you next time. No, he won't. It's a podcast. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.